Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from New Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, we're going to take a break from my occasional series of podcasts about Rwanda to talk with a returning guest. Samuel Totten is one of the founders of Genocide Studies and the author or editor of dozens of books. He is a professor emeritus from University of Arkansas and now retired, but not quit. he has not yet quit working. Over the past decade, he's devoted an increasing percentage of his time to work in the field. In particular, he's traveled repeatedly to the Sudan and to East Africa more generally to interview survivors and witnesses of the violence there and eventually to try and deliver humanitarian assistance. Last time he was on the show, we talked about the book he had written about the war in the Nuba Mountains. In addition, we talked at length about the history of genocide studies as a discipline. So I encourage you, if you're interested in that, go to the archives and listen to that if you've not already done so. Now he's recently edited a new new account of this conflict. And in some sense, this brings the story up to date. But it's actually a much different kind of book. Sam has persuaded about a dozen people who are working in the Nuba Mountains to write brief accounts of their experiences. The result is an intensely personal look at the conditions in the Nuba and the lives and the decisions of those who try to help the victims there. It's a moving book, simultaneously inspiring and challenging, and I'm eager to talk about it with him. So with that, Sam, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us again on New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you very much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. So... Uh, we, we talked a little bit last time you were on the show about your own personal background, and, and we'll touch base a, a little more about that in a minute. But, but for those people who are un, unfamiliar with what's going on now in the Nuba Mountains and in the Sudan more broadly, can, can you maybe give us a brief sense of the history and dynamics of this conflict? The Nuba was uh, the Nuba Mountains, which is in the state of uh, South Kordofan in, in Sudan was attacked by the government of Sudan in uh, the late 1980s as part of the Second Sudanese Civil War. And the Second Sudanese Civil War was ignited in 1983, actually. Uh, And uh, it was a war between the folks in the South uh, and the government in Khartoum. And basically, it was over the fact that the people in the South were almost totally disenfranchised. What I mean by that is uh, they uh, did not have a say in the running of the government. They didn't have uh, representation in the government. Uh, They frequently did not vote, could not vote, and as far as uh, infrastructure in the area, they had virtually no roads, none. 
they had one or two hospitals uh, and a lot of small clinics in an area that was massive, uh, that is massive, uh, and they had uh, few schools, certainly no colleges, and they were being put upon uh, by the government of Sudan. And the Nuba Mountain people uh, became involved in this uh, because the people in the south uh, basically migrated up north somewhat into the Nuba Mountains and fought from that area, and the Nuba ultimately joined in the battle with the south against the north. And what happened to the Nuba was uh, very strange in the sense that uh, they were pretty much cut off from the world, and Khartoum was using food as uh, part and parcel of the war effort, and basically began to strangle, uh, almost literally, the people of the Nuba Mountains, and then uh, began to uh, both bomb their farms, uh, steal their farms, and uh, the Khartoum began form these gigantic, uh, what they refer to as mechanic, uh, uh, mechanic, mechanical farms where they brought in, or mechanized farms where they brought in these huge machines, and uh, the Nuba Mountains became the breadbasket of Sudan at the time. And as the people were being bombed off their farms, they uh, were pretty much pushed up to the mountainside, sheer rock, and had no place to grow uh, food and were fearful of uh, going back down into the valley to their farms. And they began to uh, literally starve to death. And I'm not sure uh, how many people actually ended up starving to death, but they did suffer the entire gamut of hunger. And what I mean by that is not only daily hunger, but malnutrition, severe malnutrition, and then right on to uh, starvation. And so that was uh, that happened between 1989 and uh, the 1990s. And uh, slowly but surely, the international government, uh, international community became involved. And finally, in uh, 2005, something called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, the CPA, was uh, signed. And as many might know, uh, at that time, it was agreed that, uh, Khartoum agreed that the people of the South would be able to hold a referendum and the people of the South could vote uh, whether to remain as part of uh, Sudan, part, uh, part of the nation of Sudan, or uh, leave and form their own nation. And the uh, referendum was uh, held in 2009, and the uh, vote came out to about 99.456 in favor of seceding from uh, Sudan, and they ultimately formed their own nation, uh, the new nation called uh, the Republic of South Sudan. The problem is, is that the Nuba Mountains... Uh, ended up being caught in the middle, and they assumed that they were going to go with the South since they since they fought with the South. 
but there was some sort of compromise where the Nuba Mountains would remain with Sudan, thus setting uh, the stage, if you will, for the uh, current uh, crisis in the Nuba Mountains. Now, of course, throughout this period, there was the crisis in Darfur as well. And while the international community and most, uh, I think, uh, journalists uh, and uh, activists perceive the uh, crisis beginning in 2003 in Darfur, it actually uh, had been going on for years prior to that, at least back to 1985 when there was a ma- massive drought in the region. And uh, I won't get into a lot of detail, but basically uh, the uh, Arab herders, uh, the nomads, uh, generally would drop down uh, to the farm areas of the sedentary people, the black Africans they refer to themselves as, uh, drop down, ask permission to uh, graze their animals along uh, the uh, farm areas, and generally they would be permitted to do so. However, uh, in the mid-80s, as the drought increased and people became more uh, desperate, both for farmland as well as grazing land, uh, the situation changed in the sense that the nomads uh, became very, very aggressive and quit asking permission, and their animals would come in and eat the uh, the black Africans' crops, trample their crops, and so uh, a crisis erupted in the mid-'80s, uh, but blew up in uh, 2003 into the war that we now know as uh, the Darfur Genocide. Uh, the situation in Darfur continues apace. Uh, it's almost pure chaos in Darfur. Uh, villages, black African villages, continue to be attacked, not just by the government, but by uh, actually uh, rebel groups that have splintered uh, off from the main rebel groups. And there's also uh, a lot of uh, criminal activity as well, and uh, gangs that come in and attack people. They're trying to, the government is trying to induce people to return to their villages from the IDP camps. There are approximately 2 million people in IDP camps still in Darfur, and uh, to uh, return from the refugee camps in Chad. There are approximately 600,000 people in the uh, camps in Chad to this day. So the area is uh, still uh, in great upheaval, and then uh, there's another area called the Blue State, a uh, Blue Nile State, which is uh, adjacent to the Nuba Mountains, and they're in conflict as well, basically for the same reasons that they're being threatened by Khartoum and uh, are fighting for their own rights. So the conflict in the Nuba restarted again, what, five years ago, four years ago? How long has the new iteration of this been going on? It's, it started, it's, it erupted again in uh, June of 2011. So it's been going on for six and a half, close to seven years. And, and this is a conflict I'm going to guess, unless you're a specialist in the area, nobody has heard about. Uh, why has it been so, why have journalists not paid attention to the conflict to this recent conflict, whereas Darfur and other areas have gotten more attention in the past? 
Yes, that's a very interesting question, and I would say this, that early on, uh, and this is roughly 2011, 2012, uh, even uh, 213, there was uh, an initial interest in the area. Journalists such as Nicholas Kristof with the New York Times actually made a, a couple of short trips up into uh, the Nuba Mountains, not too far up, my understanding is, but at least to uh, meet people, to get a sense of what was going on. Uh, there were some uh, TV journalists who also made their way up, but as the uh, crisis developed and continued, you're absolutely right. The interest dropped off precipitously. Mm. Uh, part of the problem, of course, was that uh, to enter Sudan, uh, one has to cross illegally into Sudan, uh, usually from South Sudan, the Republic of South Sudan. So it's not easy to do. Uh, it's dangerous to do, and my sense is is that probably uh, created its own barrier. But then, of course, as uh, we all know, uh, crisis seemed to uh, ignite all over. Africa, well, large parts of Africa and uh, the Middle East that I think pretty much drew attention away from uh, this really very tiny crisis uh, in the Nuba Mountains. And so it was probably perceived as largely insignificant, especially when compared to the civil war that we now have uh, in uh, South Sudan, which Mm -hmm. uh, was ignited in December of 2013. So what's been the response of the international community to the conflict in the Nuba Mountains? Has there been significant efforts by governments or international organizations to, um, I don't know, to offer to, 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 to um, work to help settle the conflict or to deliver aid? What, what's been the international community's response? Primarily, the response has been uh, to carry out uh, diplomatic talks with Khartoum. But these talks, of course, uh, went hand-in-hand with what was uh, happening as well in uh, Darfur, what was happening in the Blue Nile State, and then the Nuba Mountains. Uh, And uh, as I've explained time and time again is it's been talk, talk, and more talk uh, with very little being accomplished. As far as providing international aid, it's been a pretty much nil with one major exception. And when I say nil, uh, every single uh, organization, NGO uh, or UN organization pulled out of uh, the Nuba Mountains uh, by, I'd say, uh, probably late 2011, early uh, 2012. And when one travels up into the Nuba Mountains, one sees virtually no organizations, uh, not the UN, uh, not Oxfam, uh, uh, not Doctors Without Borders. No one is up there. No one. And uh, 
there, as far as uh, help, I'd say the only major help that the uh, the people receive is from uh, the only fully. Uh, operational hospital in the region, which is uh, run by an American surgeon, an uh, absolutely amazing individual, uh, Dr. Tom Katina. Uh, he's a surgeon, and uh, he runs uh, a hospital in uh, the Nuba, and then there's a uh, a hospital, but it's not fully operational. That is, they don't uh, perform surgeries. It's called the uh, German Doctors Hospital, and uh, they see uh, a lot of patients uh, on a daily basis. I mean, if you drop by the German Doctors Hospital, they're generally 30, 40, 50 people out in front waiting to be seen by a physician for one illness or another. But as far as food, um, uh, nothing is happening except for the the that is being brought up by uh, individuals uh, in uh, trucks because planes cannot go in. So the government uh, the government has pretty much set up a uh, no fly zone uh, over the Nuba Mountains. So nobody dares fly uh, food in, or not even drops of food, mm-hmm. let alone landing. Uh, but for the past uh, six years, actually, uh, there's been an operation, and it's been qu- actually we've all been asked. And when I say we, that is the half a dozen or so people who have uh, been trucking food up into the Nuba Mountains uh, during this crisis. Have uh, we were all uh, pretty much asked to remain silent about a major effort that was underway to provide food. And uh, we all remain silent because the uh, word was out that if anybody mentioned uh, this particular operation, and I will uh, mention it now because other people have mentioned it in print, uh, the... Uh, the expectation was that Khartoum would shut it down. So there was this kind of uh, quid pro quo where uh, the government would allow this food in. And what it involved, basically, is uh, the U.S. government flew in tons of food into uh, South Sudan, the Republic of South Sudan, very close to the border with uh, Sudan, very, very close. And uh, then food was being trucked up by an organization uh, called Samaritan's Purse, uh, Mm an evangelical organization that had been uh, very active in the Nuba Mountains uh, for decades, uh, helping to set up uh, uh, water points or boreholes, pumps, and uh, set up schools and churches uh, while they, uh, you know, went about their evangelical work. So that was pretty amazing, uh, and, and tons and tons of food got in. But everyone else was pretty much on their own, and I may as well mention this now. I mean, the only reason, actually, I even began cooking food up is because I had been informed that there were places that Samaritan's Purse did not go, did not reach, uh, where people were uh, in dire need of food. And part of that was because it was either uh, along the front of the war or very, very difficult places to reach. 
Uh, otherwise, I would have thought, well, you know, maybe uh, this would have been uh, redundant. And, you know, what's the purpose of risking one's life? Yeah. But when I heard that, I decided, all right, there there is a reason to go up there and to try to help the people. And, and actually, some of these other teams that I bumped into uh, were doing the same thing. So that's maybe a good a, a good transition to talk about your own personal relationship with this. And so I'd like to maybe we could start by asking you to say a little bit about how did you end up? Um, what was the transition point for you from being on a college campus, writing and editing books and giving talks to actually being on the ground in Africa? How did that happen? Yeah, it was rather remarkable. Uh, in um, 2004, the summer of 2004, I was approached uh, to join uh, something called the Atrocities Documentation Project. And it was a project that uh, was going to involve sending what they referred to as investigators, 24 investigators, uh, to Darfur to collect data uh, from uh, black African citizens whose villages uh, had been attacked uh, to collect data to uh, basically send it back to uh, the U.S. State Department uh, so that the state could analyze the data to try to ascertain whether genocide had been perpetrated or not. Uh, ultimately, uh, 24 investigators were sent uh, to uh, chat. Uh, it was decided that it was too, probably too dangerous to go into Darfur at that time, and the State Department did not want to risk, obviously, uh, these individuals from uh, possibly being killed. So uh, what we did is we uh, uh, were assigned uh, in twos, pairs, to different refugee camps up and down um, the uh, Chad-Darfur border. And uh, so I, uh, I ended up actually doing that, and I was in a very small village called Goz Beta in southern Chad, and uh, my partner happened to be a... Uh, uh, a lawyer with the U.S. Justice Department on leave, and we were each provided with a uh, interpreter, and we each uh, ended up interviewing approximately, I think, 25 individuals each. Altogether, this 24-member uh, team interviewed uh, close to, uh, I think it was 1,100 individuals. So, and again, as I said, all this information went back to State Department, and ultimately uh, then uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell uh, analyzed it and declared on, I think it was September 9, 2004, that, uh, that Sudan, Khartoum, uh, had, perpetrated, had uh, perpetrated genocide and possibly was uh, continuing to do so. That basically ignited uh, my... Uh, ongoing activity in in Africa. What I did on my own was I returned to Chad. I think it was three or four times, at least three times, three or four times on my own, and I went back to uh, different refugee camps. Uh, and I also returned to uh, Goz Beta. 
Uh, and I did, uh, I conducted my own interviews uh, of individuals in regard to what they had experienced uh, during these uh, attacks on their villages. And a long story short, because it is a very long story, but uh, ultimately I ended up with a uh, Fulbright in Rwanda. Huh. In 2009, uh, I was working with uh, the uh, Center for Conflict Management at the National University of Rwanda. I was based in a place called Butari in Rwanda. Since I was there, obviously, I had relatively uh, easy uh, travel to to get to uh, Chad. So I continued my uh, travels to Chad in between work in Rwanda. And at some point uh, during my Fulbright, I was invited to give a talk uh, at the University of Chicago uh, about Darfur. They were having a conference, and uh, they uh, they were bringing in a good number of speakers. I decided to go. And on my way to Chicago from Kigali, we went through, as we always did, uh, Nairobi, and it just so happened that uh, a person sat down next to me who uh, was working in the Nuba Mountains with Samaritan's Purse. I'd never heard of Samaritan's Purse. And uh, so anyways, we traded uh, stories about what we were doing, and uh, I told him I had been trying to get into uh, – uh, Darfur for, uh, by that time, four years, and had absolutely uh, no luck. And he said, well, I think I can get you in uh, to the Nuba Mountains. And he told me, I didn't know where the Nuba Mountains were. And uh, he said, uh, the reason that I was attracted to going to the Nuba Mountains is he mentioned that there was an IDP camp of people from Darfur just outside the village that he had been based in. And he said, not only do I think I can get you in there, I can get you a free flight in, and when you get in, you don't need a, a visa. You just walk huh. off the plane. Wow. And I, I said... I'm definitely interested, and unlike a lot of these situations where people suggest things like this and don't come through, he came through. And about uh, probably about a year and a half later, uh, I was uh, in the Nuba Mountains for the first time. And I returned twice in uh, 2010, interviewing folks in uh, this IDP camp, the people from Darfur. But then, as I learned the stories of uh, what the people in the Nuba Mountains had gone through, I decided to start interviewing them. And then the threat of war broke out in uh, in December and January uh uh, December 210, January uh, 211, while I was there. And then seven months later, the, uh, the war broke out. Huh. So I'm going to guess almost nobody listening to this podcast has ever been to this region. So, so can you tell us a little bit about what the region looks like and sounds like and feels like? Sure. I, uh, the, uh, Initially, when I went, uh, I, I flew in. Uh, we would land uh, on this uh, uh, field of stone. Uh, there was no airport, uh, no customs, as I mentioned. Uh, we would land uh, in a uh, retrofitted uh, 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 
two-prop plane, and uh, it was half cargo plane, half passenger plane. Mm -hmm. We would land, we would get off, and we would go into the uh, little village of Cauda, which is one of the bigger villages in the area. And uh, it's it's a uh, actually it's very small. Uh, the the main part of the village is an open air souk, uh, a uh, open air marketplace with uh, stands made out of uh, tree branches and you know anything they could cover the top with. Uh, whether it was you know more tree branches or uh, tarps or or plastic or whatever, and uh, very dusty, no roads. Uh, there were uh, a good amount of green trees and and bushes, uh, and it was really quite pleasant. Uh, and uh, very rocky, uh, kind of mountainous, and uh, semi-arid as well when you got out into the desert. But it was basically, when you got out in the desert, I mean, it was all scrub brush and brown sand as far as you could see. Huh. And when you traveled, uh, you traveled on uh, either uh, dirt roads that had been, uh, you know, worn into roads because of constant travel by uh, either people on foot or uh, four-wheel vehicles. I mean, I always uh, uh, traveled in a, a land cruiser uh, when I was traveling long distances, or when I wasn't, I would either uh, hire a motorcycle to uh, drive around on or walk. Uh, and when you were off the roads, you were on paths that were thick with sand, and it was hard to ride a motorcycle. And, you know, it, you kind of, uh, you know, try, you know, trudge through this uh, dust, and, and it was very, very dusty. Uh, but Mountains rose from the valley, and uh, it was very uh, picturesque and, and quite nice. Now, uh, when I started traveling, though, from the south, once the war began, it was a totally different story in the sense that when I crossed from South Sudan into Sudan, uh, I would have to drive, uh, and again, I always hired a, uh, a land cruiser uh, from the Nuba Mountains, driven by a, uh, a Nuba uh, individual, uh, and it, to get up to Kauta, we would go to Kauta and use that as our base camp, basically, and it would take us between seven and nine or ten hours to get there over these dusty roads. Um, and uh, uh, a good part of the way was just basically, you know, that dun-colored sand. Um, and then as you gradually made your way up into the Nuba Mountains, you would you would pass by these uh, sheer mountains uh, that were... Uh, honeycombed with uh, caves. And uh, as you drove up, you would periodically come to a roadblock, and the roadblock was comprised of generally uh, sticks in the form of uh, X, or, you know, if it was a little bit more uh, enhanced, it might be uh, something like a gate made out of branches, and you would stop, and there would be... Uh, uh, rebels there with automatic weapons, and they would come up and 
ask you uh, or ask the driver initially to see uh, his paperwork, and then he would ask the soldier or the rebel would ask to see everybody else's pa- uh, paperwork. And when we, uh, whenever we drove, or when, I should say, whenever we do drive up, we always uh, uh, give people lifts. So we're generally probably carrying uh, up to, you know, 13, 14, 15 people on the back of the truck. And so they check everybody's uh, uh, paperwork. And what I have, of course, I don't have a visa, as I mentioned, uh, but what I do have is a uh, a pass from the... uh, a group called NRRDO is a relief group, but also uh, tied to uh, very closely uh, to the uh, rebel group, uh, the CM People's Liberation uh, Movement slash North. But it's it's rough going. Um, it's uh, you cross a lot of wadis, dry wadis. Uh, wadi uh, Wadi is a, a riverbed that's uh, bone dry uh, during the dry season and uh, raging torrents of water during the uh, uh, rainy season. And uh, so you draw, you cross a lot of wadis. It's always, you know, very rocky going down, very rocky going up, and very, very slow. And periodically you will come to maybe a, uh, a place uh, that has four or five trees along the uh, wadi, so it cools down a little bit. But otherwise, uh, the heat is pretty fierce. And uh, I've been up there... Uh, I think the hottest it was was right around between I don't know 112 and 115. Wow! Uh, and when you carry water, uh, the water turns uh, warm, very warm, very fast. So you don't feel like drinking that. So it's a good slog wherever you go. So how how significant is the suffering in the region now? Right now, there's a uh, a uh, tenuous uh, ceasefire. Yeah. So, uh, at this moment, and the ceasefire has been in effect for the past uh, several months. Uh, the good news is uh, the government of Sudan is not carrying out daily uh, aerial attacks. And those aerial attacks were becoming actually more fierce uh, because not only was the uh, uh, not only were they meaning Khartoum carrying out these aerial attacks with uh, Antonovs, and Antonovs are uh, retrofitted cargo planes that. Uh, Sudan purchased from Ukraine uh, into bombers, but they were also using uh, fighter jets towards the end of this to go in to attack villages. And uh, while the Antonovs uh, were dangerous enough, uh, one always heard them coming because they were lumbering, uh, they were noisy, and so people could always. 
jump into these eight foot eight foot or so holes that everybody has done, both in the souks around the schools and the in the people's compounds uh, in the villages, and so people would jump in these. And when the bombs hit and the shrapnel flew, it would ideally and and pretty much work quite well. The shrapnel would fly above these holes and and not kill the people. Uh, but when these fighter jets came into play, it was an entirely different story because they came in so fast uh, and could go solo. Uh, it became uh, just that much more dangerous. So now, while uh, people don't have to worry about those aerial attacks, they are still suffering from uh, a lack of food. And uh, the reason being, again, is... Uh, there are no international uh, aid groups, uh, formal aid groups, that are bringing food up. Uh, so it's still being trucked in by whether it's Samaritan's Purse or uh, there's another group called Persecution Project or individuals such as myself. So food is always a problem. Uh, the uh, government of Sudan uh, blocks any food that is being transported in to be sold from the north. Uh, so they're blocking all food from coming in. And any food that makes it into the souks, the open markets, is sky high. So there are a lot of people who do not have food who are suffering uh, greatly. And, I mean, I could tell a whole slew of stories how that manifests itself uh, today and, and has actually over the past several years. Uh, so that is – Probably the the main pain that the, the people are experience, experiencing, again, this uh, desperation for food. And while most people um, in the Nuba Mountains are not literally starving to death, there are pockets of people who are. And I can talk about that as well. And the reason is, is that they're cut off from uh, the other part of uh the main part of the Nuba, uh, due to um, a lot of uh, activity by uh, government of Sudan troops, and so they're they're virtually an island surrounded either by the government of Sudan troops or the Nile River. And across the Nile River, you've got uh, South Sudan and uh, the uh, treacherous uh, situation over there. So. Um, so people are suffering from, let's say, uh, daily hunger. Uh, most people are going without uh, uh, three meals. Uh, a lot of people are going without two meals. And uh, there are people who uh, are suffering, and this has been uh, documented uh, from uh, – most people are probably suffering from malnutrition, but uh, not severe malnutrition or starvation, though, though numbers certainly are higher for severe malnutrition. So the, the, the essay you write includes kind of a very personal narrative about your experience uh, delivering food there. And mm. I'm wondering what your wife thinks about what you do. Yeah, that's a very complicated situation. Um, my wife, uh, who is also now a retired professor, she was in the Department of Nursing for 30-plus years at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Uh, 
I think one of the things that initially intrigued her was the fact that I never stopped talking about genocide. It must have been a very uh, strange <laughs> relationship early on now that I look back at it. Uh, but uh, she uh, she became well aware early on that really my passion was this issue of genocide. And she actually told me prior to my departure for work with the Atrocities Documentation Project, she said, this is going to be a sea change in your life. And, you know, I kind of listened to that, but I was more geared up to getting over there and getting to work and didn't really reflect on that. Uh, but she was absolutely right. Uh, because, as I mentioned, as soon as I was done with that, I ended up going back to Chad, and, and now I've been to the Nuba, uh, I think, five times during the war, two times prior to that. And uh, she doesn't like it. Yeah. Uh, and that's due to... I mean, first of all, of course, there's the fear that she knows, you know, quite well that uh, these bombings took place. And uh, at one point in time, I had been serving as a relay. Uh, I was receiving uh, photographs of the uh, initial attacks. And, uh, I mean, the, the photos are, are gruesome. I mean, it looked like people had gone through... Uh, uh, you know, had been chopped up by meat cleavers or, uh, you know, grinded up in a, uh, uh, ground up in a uh, <clears throat> food manufacturing uh, operation. And so she was very fearful uh, about that. In fact, uh, <laughs> the first trip I took into the war zone, uh, I entered on Christmas Day. Huh. And uh, so I wanted to. Uh, I had. A, I always carry a, a sat phone, a satellite phone, and so uh, Christmas Eve, I called her to wish her Merry Christmas, and uh, she wouldn't talk because she was afraid that, uh, I mean, it was common knowledge that uh, the uh, government of Sudan could hone in on these uh, satellite phones or, for, for that matter, any sort of technology and, uh, you know, send planes in if they wish. So she wouldn't talk. Uh, but, yeah, she's well aware of the danger. And, of course, I would come back with, you know, these stories about running out into the desert or dropping into these holes when when the Antonovs came over, uh, which didn't help the situation, obviously, as far as her, you know, uh, not, well, her concern uh, obviously sure. rose with each and every trip. And then um, I, I ended up becoming very dehydrated, and that's a another story, but long story short, I had to be, I ended up in a Doctors Without Borders field hospital for a week, and then I was medevaced out to Nairobi Hospital, where I ended up there for a week, and then she became even more concerned uh, that, well, you know, not only are we facing the bombs now, but there's this dehydration problem, which could be very serious. I ended up uh, hitting my head against a, a a cinder block, a cinder block wall in a uh, makeshift uh, shower in a refugee camp. So she, while she's worried, she's been incredibly supportive. Uh, I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, I've got the best wife in the world. I mean, she <laughs> she supports everything that I do, um, and uh, it really does not complain. I mean, she'll complain early on when I say, well, I'm getting ready to go again. 
and uh, she keeps saying, well, you keep saying that, you know, you're, you're thinking about, you know, not going as many times. When are you going to make the final decision? But other than that, she is as supportive as supportive could be, huh. which so, I think is very unusual. No, it's so, so you, your essay is in here, but, but the book compiles, I don't know, a dozen or so. Uh, right. How, yeah. 13, I think. Yes. Yeah. How, how difficult was it for you to persuade people to write about their experiences? Not very difficult, actually. Good. Um, yeah, I mean, there were a couple of people. I, I did have to kind of, uh, metaphorically speaking, twist their arm. Um, and I had to go back to them probably three, three or four or five times. And by the time I went back to them, I had, I, what I did is I started to use the fact that, well, you know, seven or eight folks and uh, have uh, decided that they thought, you know, think this is worthwhile, and I would mention their names and the work that they did, and that would draw new people into the project. But uh, once I landed a person named, and I've mentioned him, Tom Katina, everybody knows Tom Katina. When I say everybody, I mean everybody in the Nuba Mountains knows this guy, and they refer to him as Dr. Tom. And uh, anybody and everybody who goes up into the Nuba uh, to try to help the Nuba, they all know Tom. They've all met him one time or another, if not worked with him for months. And so when they heard that uh, Tom Katina was part of this and was sharing his story, uh, there was a lot of uh, interest, avid interest in taking part. So as I was reading these, one of the things that I thought was important about these was the ability through these personal narratives to get a sense of, of why people make a decision to get involved in this very personal way. So, so what is your sense from, from these essays? What motivates the people you, you ask to contribute to participate? Not participate in the book, but participate in, in helping the people of the new book. Yeah, well, actually, I think uh, there there are several, uh, I think, uh, different motivations. But interestingly, a lot of the folks are motivated. Uh, a lot of the folks I've met are motivated uh, by the fact that uh, they're Christians, yeah. and uh, they feel that uh, they have a responsibility to uh, reach out and help others. And I'm not just speaking about the evangelicals. I mean, obviously, the evangelicals, uh, you know, have a purpose in mind when they are when they were up in the Nuba Mountains, and that was to, you know, convert people to Christianity. Uh, so that was one thing. But the the people who uh, are evangelicals, they're not up there solely um, trying to convert people. They're up there to help people as well. And I mentioned the fact that they would put in these, uh, you know, dig these wells and put in hand pumps. Uh, they would build schools uh, as well as churches, uh, and they would help to fund uh, uh, medical clinics. Uh, so they did a lot of good. Uh, 
for the people, you know, uh, in, I guess you could say, in a secular fashion that the people were, were grateful for. Uh, because it, it is, um, and I hate using this word, but I'll use it since uh, a close friend of mine who is a Nuba uh, uses it. it. It's, you know, it's... It's pretty primitive in the sense, not the people. The people were quite sophisticated, I think, uh, but primitive in the sense of living conditions. And so if you get a, uh, for example, a uh, a place where you can pump water, I mean, it saves people literally hours from walking to uh, a uh, feeded pond where they load up their buckets of water and then have to carry it miles and miles and miles. So it really does uh, radically change their lifestyle. So that's one case. But there are also Christians who are not evangelicals necessarily who uh, are up there, and most of these individuals uh, are uh, attached to Mother of Mercy Hospital, the, the major hospital, and they go up um, out of the goodness of their hearts, as well as, of course, uh, you know, uh, their Christianity, uh, reaching out and helping others and, and showing love to others. And so there are a good number of people who do that. But then I've also met uh, individuals who are uh, not necessarily uh, up there for reasons of their Christianity, but are doctors who uh, have an expertise, and uh, for years they've reached out to uh, other groups around the world, uh, whether it's in South America or Alaska uh, or Asia, and have heard about the situation and have gone up and uh, served as uh, surgeons or assistant surgeons or whatever. And then uh, there are uh, reporters that end up going up there and uh, staying uh, for good periods of time uh, who work on different projects and uh, either initially covering what's going on, but then getting to know the people and uh, becoming more involved uh with uh, projects such as one individual who who is in the book, uh, his name's Tomo Krisnar, who actually went up and started set, setting up uh, uh, ways to document attacks on villages. Uh, another reporter went up and joined what is called Nuba Reports to help uh, cover the attacks and then to get disseminate uh, these reports uh, to media across the globe. And then there are individuals like myself who are pretty much unattached uh, and um, uh, you know, had the initial interest in what was happening from a uh, academic point of view that moved in then to, I guess you could say, social activism, who would be friended a lot of Nuba who were concerned about the actions of uh, the government of Sudan and decided, well, these people need help, so help them. Yeah, so, so you use an, a, a really interesting phrase in your introduction. You say that these stories say much about what it means not to be a bystander. What, what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, a lot by that. I, uh, 
I mean, number one, uh, you know, as an educator for years and years and years, uh, you know, I've come across the concept of bystander, you know, initially with the Holocaust and and what it meant, uh, people basically uh, standing rather aloof, uh, either watching up close what was happening uh, to the Jews and others, or um, outside the region and... uh, hearing about what was going on, but remaining silent, uh, not doing anything to try to activate interest in or concern about uh, what was happening in uh, Nazi Germany or, uh, you know, the occupied territory. But then, of course, uh, when I started looking at other genocides, it was rather obvious that bystanders uh, were a common uh, uh, factor uh, in related in relation to all genocides. That is, either there were people on the ground who who uh, didn't do anything, didn't say anything, um, didn't try to help uh, those who were in desperate need, uh, and uh, even more outside the region, who basically went about their lives, maybe read about uh, uh, genocidal actions, and um, did. Absolutely nothing. Said nothing. Um, really didn't care about it any more than uh, maybe a um, you know a huge car accident or something. I mean, it caught their attention and they went on with their lives. Uh, but very few people I've found uh, are willing to uh, take a stand, and not only take a stand, but take a stand within uh, an, a region where the killing is taking place, hmm. and. I don't know if uh, most of these people uh, went in to the Nuba thinking, well, I'm not going to be a bystander, Uh, but ultimately what they did was absolutely uh, contrary to being a bystander. That is, they went in, they witnessed what was happening, and they... uh, reached out to try to help those people who were in desperate need in one way or another. And so they were no longer bystanders. And what really surprised me was that not only were they not bystanders once, these people kept going back. And you would think, uh, you know, some of them actually were were uh, perceived by loved ones and friends, and, and, and I include myself in this category, as nuts, crazy. <laughs> there was something wrong with you for doing that. In fact, I'll tell you, and, and I won't mention the person who, who said this because I'm now <laughs> on good terms with him again, and I don't want to get crosswise, but a very, uh, and if he listens to this, he'll know who he is, of course, a uh, very well-known um, scholar genocide studies uh, told me that I had something like a uh, uh, a messiah complex going in. And uh, we got into a a quite a little verbal exchange about that. And, uh, you know, he really made me start to ruminate about that. And actually, I went to Dr. Israel Sharney, a uh, noted scholar of genocide studies, who happens to be a, a a psychologist and psychiatrist, and I asked him, I said, do you think I'm just suffering from something like this? And uh, he gave me, uh, you know, his professional opinion and said, no, I don't think so, but I think there are other things at work. So anyhow, uh, yeah, these people are standing up and and 
speaking out. And when they get back, they speak out as well. And, and they help get the word out, and they ha- some of them have gone up to Capitol Hill and testified. So these people are definitely not bystanders. I mean, they are... Uh, they are activists, and they're uh, working to help uh, these folks in any way they possibly can. So you, you went from scholarship to activism, and I, I know that's a false polarity, but what what has your experience being an activist taught you about studying genocide? Well, uh, it's it's very interesting because the re- the uh, reception to such has been extremely mixed. Uh, I've had uh, scholars uh, basically state uh, unequivocally that you can't be a scholar and an activist. Huh. You're one or the other, and that if you're an activist, then uh, it uh, pretty much uh, uh, calls into question any uh, academic scholarly work that you do on that same topic. So, in other words, if uh, one is conducting research in the Nuba Mountains on uh, the current crisis, but one becomes an activist, then uh, they purport that everything that one writes, uh, no matter how analytical, no matter uh, how well it's documented with empirical evidence, is automatically called into question. So there's that. Um, and then there are others. Uh, and again, I'm talking, we're talking about genocide scholars who uh, are. Uh, uh, who are complementary, let's put it that way, for lack of a better term, uh, who uh, convey uh, their respect for what, you know, what one is doing, what I was doing, what I am doing, um, and at the same time say, well, you know, it's not something that I would ever do, not because of the activist part, but simply because it's kind of beyond their ken, if you will. Uh, and then there are others, and some fall in this uh, the, the category that I just mentioned, who are incredibly supportive, and write and ask me, how can I support your efforts? Huh. And uh, a lot of these folks, uh, genocide scholars, uh, have actually donated uh, funds uh, to help me purchase food. And huh. what I've made uh, very clear to everyone, and this is just an aside, is that uh, I did not use any funds that I received from anybody for my travel, uh, for for hiring a, a driver or a vehicle or for food or uh, whatever, it's all, for my own food, I mean, it's all to purchase food to deliver to the people. And uh, there are a good number of genocide scholars who have supported um, all five trips that I've made up in the Nuba Mountains during this war. So that's rather remarkable. Yeah. Um, 
And then I should say that there are also, um, though this is rather limited, um, there are also a core group that are interested in having me, um, you know, write up and explain what I'm doing and why and how uh, and publishing those results. And then, of course, yourself, uh, this interview. So, you know, it really runs the entire gamut. So we're starting to run out of time. So I'm wondering, you said, I, I think the phrase you used was tenuous ceasefire. What, what do you yes. see as likely in the near future for the Nuba? I think there, I, 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 it's my gut feeling that uh, this ceasefire is going to be broken. Yeah. Uh, now, it has held for a good number of months. But uh, there are a number of uh, factors that come into play. First of all, there's now, for the first time, uh, fissures in uh, the within the uh, Sudan People's Liberation uh, Movement North, uh, which is the group uh, from the Nuba Mountains, and uh, one. Uh, part of the group uh, wants to continue the fight. Another wants to uh, sign uh, the uh, peace agreement and uh, go back to uh, a footing where there's, you know, uh, obviously no more war. Uh, but the group that uh, wants to continue fighting says we are never going to receive our rights if we capitulate, and this is the way they put it, capitulate to a peace agreement because we're going to be back to where we were after the Comprehensive Peace Agreement was signed in 2005, where we're under the thumb, the fist, of uh, President uh, Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan, and the government of Sudan. So there's that problem. Um, and uh, there's a lot of distrust, as you can imagine, between uh, Khartoum and the rebel group. And my sense is that sooner or later, the fighting is going to break out again. How long it's going to last, I do not know. But one of the things that I was told over and over and over again uh, during all five trips by um, members of the uh, rebel group, including uh, officers, uh, is that the plan was to go all the way to Khartoum. Uh, and what they meant by that is we're going to overthrow the al-Bashir yeah. regime and we're going to take over and, uh, you know, we're going to make uh, form new Sudan. So I don't think that mentality is left. That mentality is still there. Um, and I'm not putting it all on the rebels because the threats are still coming from Khartoum as well. I mean, periodically uh, what you hear from uh, Khartoum is, well, hey, we're going to establish Sharia law all over that country. Country. And even the Muslims, the modern Muslims in the Nuba and Darfur, don't want any part of that. So there's, my point is, tension is still there. And I'm not sure exactly how that tension is going to be resolved or dissolved, for that matter. Well, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's, it's, it's an important story. Uh, and an interesting one that you're telling. I, I always ask the kind of the final, same final question for, for listeners who want to know more. Um, 
Can you suggest something that our listeners, or, or maybe maybe me, the semester's early, I have, in theory, a weekend where I don't have anything to do, no grading. Um, what can we read or, or maybe watch to learn more about, um, about the conflicts that, that you're observing and, and, and working in? Yeah, I actually have a couple of books. I mean, one one is uh, somewhat technical and and uh, really very limited in its focus, but for me it, it was uh, rather enlightening. And uh, because what it talks about is actually a uh, international operation that tried to get food into uh, the. Uh, Southern parts of Sudan during the uh, during the war, that is the Second Sudanese Civil War, uh, which, as I mentioned, involved Nuba, and it's called. It's got a, a rather long title, um, but it's called humanitarianism. Humanitarianism under siege. Hmm. The subtitle is A Critical Review of Operation Lifeline Sudan, huh. and it's by, uh, it's by somebody that I think uh, a lot of folks who have studied humanitarianism will know, Larry Manier. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it was put out by the Red Sea Press in Trenton, New Jersey. And it talks about why this, how this was launched, why it was launched, who was involved, um, and uh, basically it was a relief effort to help stave off, uh, you know, the disaster of uh, starvation. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, this lifeline never made it into the Nuba Mountains. Now, another book that I would recommend. Uh, which really has to do with Darfur, but uh, it's it's a it's a fine read, and, uh, and 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 actually this individual made a stand as well, which really uh, intrigues me. Uh, it's by a person named Mukesh Kapila, hmm. uh, K A P I L A, who has become a friend, uh, and the name of the book is called Against. A Tide of Evil. And the subtitle is How One Man Became the Whistleblower to the First Mass Murder of the 21st Century. A rather remarkable book. And uh, I would say those two, uh, off the top of my head, are something that people, you know, might want to to read, refer to. Excellent. Well... I know you're planning on another trip soon, and so I wish you safe travels, and and we will be thinking of you, and I thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I I really greatly appreciate uh, the opportunity, so uh, all the best to you as well. All right. Thank you much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Samuel Totten about his new book, Sudan's Nuba Mountains People Under Siege. As you heard in the interview, Sam is planning more trips to the region. If you'd like to learn more about his efforts, I've posted contact information on the website for this podcast. You can find that page through the webpage for New Books Network. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or from other podcast providers, or again from the webpage for New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I talk with Omer Bartov about his new book, Anatomy of a Genocide. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.